Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 268 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I got a little secret for you. Um, it's not every episode, but and it's not this one, but we have been quietly uploading some video versions of this podcast to YouTube. Yeah, you can find it in the show notes. It's not every episode. We may get there one day. I don't know. It's not a particular goal. Uh, but a number of you have been saying, hey, would you ever do like a video version of this? And so the answer is, yeah, we started and we just started real quietly. But if you look back, um, you can go to my YouTube channel. We'll link to it in the show notes to this episode. Um, but my YouTube channel is simply Carrie Newhoff. Just Google that. You will find the episodes from Nona Jones, uh, Michael Hyatt, Sean Cannell, uh, Les McEwen, and uh, some future episodes as well on there. So if you prefer video, and video seems to be all the fire these days, uh, you will see more and more of these episodes on YouTube. So just wanted to let you know that. Uh, you can search YouTube. You can just search my name, Carrie Newhoff. And uh, we started a new channel there and that will, you will see the occasional episode. And for the rest, you'll just have to use your imagination. Or maybe you're like me, primarily an audio listener. That's what I am. But hey, I wanted to let you guys know about that. And today, uh, man, this is, we are so fortunate to be able to have conversations like the ones that I was able to have today. Every once in a while, I get to talk to someone who really is just, a legend, like uh, who leaves behind a legacy that is incredible. I've interviewed Chuck Swindoll years ago, Eugene Peterson, uh, honestly, about a year before he died and right before he retired from public life, had that interview and uh, some others as well. Horst Schultze, I think, a, a legend in the business world. And today, uh, you're going to hear my conversation with Luis Palau. Now, a lot of you know who he is. If you don't, he is a, an evangelist who was really good friends with Billy Graham, has had a remarkable career over the last almost 50 years. And I'll tell you, at 84, has more energy than most 24-year-olds I know. Plus, we had this conversation, as, as you'll hear, uh, when he was suffering, or he is right now suffering from stage four lung cancer. And I got to tell you, it's just unbelievable to see his energy, his passion for the gospel. And I hope at age 84, if I make it that far, that I've got half of his energy. And I think you're just going to love this. And by the end of the interview, we're both in tears. And although I pray and he prays all the time, I don't usually pray on this podcast, but we finish by praying. So it's it's powerful. And I ran into Luis Palau's son uh, in in London, England last month. And we were talking about the interview and he said it was just one that was really special to his dad as well. So this is, this is just really sacred space. And I'm glad that you're joining us for this podcast. And hey, I started telling you guys about video. And on that point, uh, what is your solution for video? And here's, here's the reality. The vast majority of churches are small and the vast majority of businesses are small. And so you're saying, I can't really afford to hire anybody, but have you heard about ProMedia Fire? Because we really are in a video generation and they are like virtual staff for you at a fraction of the cost. 
Uh, I think a partner like ProMedia Fire is vital and we're using them for some of the stuff that we're doing these days. And they have a whole team of graphic designers and video editors who will create custom videos and graphics for you each month for a flat rate. So if you're producing sermon series, if you just want someone to handle the graphics for your social, that's what ProMedia Fire does. And because you listen to this podcast, you get a 10% off deal for life for what you get with ProMedia Fire. So to claim that, you have to go to this site. You go to promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's promediafire.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And I really hope you check that out. Hey, I know a lot of you had very, very positive feedback on the Church Growth Masterclass that we ran last month. And if for some reason you missed that, I want you to know the course is still open. So we had some like introductory bonuses and that kind of thing. Uh, but you can still get in. And if you want to help your church grow, and 94% of churches are not growing, they're plateaued or declining, and maybe it's that you're attracting new people, but you're running into church growth barriers. We cover that in the master class. But here's what else we cover. And this is kind of for the very first time. We cover all the reasons that churches are not growing. Like, why, why can't we reach the culture? Why don't we have new people? And so if you're a declining church going, I really, really hope we can reach people, but you don't know how to crack that code. Uh, obviously, I can't make a church grow. You can't make a church grow. Only God can make a church grow. But I do believe we can position ourselves to grow. And what I've discovered in over 20 years of local church leadership is there are things I can do that really make a difference in reaching the culture. I share all of that and more in the Church Growth Masterclass. So if you haven't checked that out, head on over to churchgrowthmasterclass.com. It is not too late for you to get in, and I'd love to join you inside that course. Well, uh, speaking of somebody who has reached millions of people with the gospel, who's changed with the times, and who has a legacy of prayer, I talk about meeting him for the first time, and I won't spoil it because we go there in the interview, uh, but it was an absolute joy to spend some time with Luis Palau, and it's my privilege to bring you that conversation right now. Well, Luis Palau, what an honor to have you on the podcast. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be on, and an honor that you would put me in front of a Canadian-based program. I'm honored as an Argentinian <laughs> living in the States. Well, we met in Canada. We, uh, we, we met a couple of years ago in Edmonton at a dinner, and I was so impressed. I was so impressed. Oh, we're going to talk about your prayer life later, but you <laughs> prayed for the bunch of us who were gathered in that room for dinner. It was just a handful of people. And uh, I thought, there is a man who has spent uh, a, a considerably greater time in prayer than I have in my life. So I was uh, very humbled and honored to have you here. Now, most of my listeners are American, even though I'm Canadian, but there are uh -huh. like five Canadians listening. So that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So let's start with your health because you've been very public about your health. And uh, my goodness, your vitality amazes me. But can you give us an update on, on how things are going with you? Oh, sure, sure, Gary. Thank you. Yeah, on December 22nd, as a Christmas gift, my doctor said, I'm sorry to tell you, but you have a cancerous tumor, stage four, on your left lung. 
And uh, wow, that's quite a shock because uh, I was 83 and I'd never been in a hospital one night except for a broken bone, which was not a sickness, but a stupidity on my part <laughs> at a camp. And uh, so it came as a surprise because we'd never been sick. And I asked him, what happened to stages one, two, and three that we jumped to four, you know? Yeah. And he kind of half-heartedly laughed. But anyway, he said, um, it's serious. There's no cure for this kind of cancer. There's no medicine to help you. I said, uh, how about surgery? Surgery won't do it either. It's just, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's a pretty much of a final deal. And so I said, okay, I'm a big boy. How many months have you given me? He said, well, if you do chemo, nine to 12 months. If you don't, and if I don't do anything, he said, you'll probably be gone in four months. So we decided for chemo. And, um, and they said, well, by next Christmas, it'll probably be the end. Well, we're beyond Christmas now. It's uh, four months beyond, so the Lord is having a good laugh at my good doctor. And uh, uh, oncologists confirmed it all. So right now, I'm feeling pretty good. In fact, if I didn't have cancer, I'd feel very well. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not breathing as well as I used to. Going up and down stairs or walking 100 yards to pick up the mail uh, makes me breathe hard. So tomorrow, I'm on for surgery. Uh, they're going to put a permanent something or other. I don't know medical terms, which is a good thing. And uh, they're going to place something so they can eliminate fluids from the lung every week or so. So, But yesterday they did a very big test, and the, the, the tumor has not grown, so that's a good word. Uh, the wow. fact that I don't breathe good, that's not so good. So it's a mixed bag, and we have lived now for 15 months, or oh, 16 anyway, 16 months, uh, day by day, which is what every Christian is supposed to do anyway. You know, I mean, a lot of people die unexpectedly. They leave in the morning and say, bye-bye, babe, I'll see you tonight, and they never come home. So it's been a good time of 16 months of Lots of time with my wife, which I never did have much before, and with my sons and the team. So it's been a good time. Sorry to take this long, but no, I, uh, I really appreciate uh, it. It's it's rare that you get a diagnosis like that, and like vitality, you know, that life force. I mean, you can hear it in your voice. For are you are you eighty four at this point? Eighty four. I'm. I'm sorry to admit. Yes, I'm eighty four. <laughs> <laughs> but spiritually, I'm at, I, at one of my best spots, I think, in my life. And uh, on the radio, I'm on every day in Spanish and English. And then I take a conference or two. I'm going to one in California. Yeah, I think spiritually, I'm uh, I'm walking with the Lord as good probably as ever. And uh, physically, the body, you have to be careful. Yeah, yeah. you told me uh, before we started recording, you become an expert on heaven. You know the entire place. Do you want to tell Absolutely. me about that? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's like when you take a, a tour of a river in France, if you ever do that, I did it with my wife. I want to know everything I can so I can enjoy the tour. Well, I thought, I know a lot about heaven. I've preached on it ever since I was a kid. But now I want to know more details. And I've discovered <laughs> a few good ones. If you've got time, I'll, I'll give you about 30 unusual, unexpected things about heaven that most people never talk about. But I Let's think we do better it. leave. I want to hear, hear no, 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 no. I didn't bring my notes anyway. Uh, but, uh, no, but it is uh, unusual. It's beautiful to think about heaven. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the, to me, my father died, as you are well aware of, uh, when I was a boy, 10 years old. Mm, and yeah. he died 
Uh, as a believer, the missionaries brought the gospel, and he believed in Jesus Christ. And when he suddenly got bronchopneumonia, there was nothing they could do for him, the doctors that dealt with him. But he was ready to go. In 10 days, the Lord took him home. And uh, wow. he sang a song, a Salvation Army song, about heaven, bright crowns up there, bright crowns for you and me, clapping his hands like kids we did in Sunday school. Uh, now everybody does it. And then uh, we, he pointed up to heaven. His head fell on the pillow, uh, you know, because of exhaustion. And he pointed up to heaven and he quoted St. Paul, I'm going to be with Jesus, which is better by far. And a few seconds later, he went to be with the Lord. And the family was around the bed. And that impressed me so much. I was a kid that my dad died singing, clapping his hands, quoting the, the Bible, and going to be with the Lord. And I thought, man, I, even as a boy, I remember thinking, that's the way to go. I mean, singing, clapping, and quoting the Bible, there's nothing better. And so ever since then, uh, 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 I've preached about heaven, and it's so real to me. I can't wait to get there and see my dad. Jesus first, then my dad, and then all <laughs> the rest of my friends, including Billy Graham. And uh, say uh -huh. hello to them, sit down, chat. Yeah, I mean, to me, heaven is going to be one big party. There'll be some duties, apparently, but I look forward to the fun times. <laughs> yeah. You... Uh so when your dad died, that left a huge impression on you. And you gave your life to Christ, was it when you were 12 years old? They just yes, made sir. a movie about your life. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Yes, I was 12. And the counselor, it was an all-boys British boarding school. Uh, mm -hmm. Funniest idea I've ever heard of. But it's a good one. Actually, all boys, you know. And my dad wanted me to learn English. It was a Cambridge Overseas program. They called it then and now. And so uh, one of the teachers was a Jewish Christian from England, Mr. Cohen, uh, Charlie Cohen. And he was the cricket coach and also arithmetic and trigonometry, things that I hated. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he was a great Christian guy. And that counselor had seven boys, and he took one out. It was a two-week camp and took one out a, a, a night, the second week, and tried to lead us to the Lord. I, Frank Chandler was his name. I still have letters that he wrote me as far. Follow up, And so he led me to the Lord using Romans 10, 9, and 10. And that's why I've always loved camps. I love counselors. And I believe little boys and girls can be saved and know it from their childhood. And I think one of the things we're missing out on the church today is a strong outreach with children. So anyway, I've been a believer since I was 12. I've always preached about heaven. But now I'm more detailed into it because I want to know every nook and cranny of the place. You already uh, mentioned your uh, friendship with Billy Graham, and he's someone, I think, who greatly influenced you. And did, is it true that he helped you start your ministry? Absolutely, yeah, in so many ways. Uh, the ministry really started earlier. Uh, you know, we belong to a very good Bible-centered congregation at church. Uh, they used to call them Plymouth Brethren. Nobody knows what that means, but they're a very solid group. They taught me the word well. I had a passion to win the loss then. Uh, but Mr. Graham gave me an example when I was dreaming about touching the big cities uh, that it could be done. He was only 29 when I read the story of his, yeah, he's with the Lord now, uh, just as he was 100. But he, he, he showed me by his life and the first uh, the first, what you call it, uh, 
A biography of his life was called Revival in Our Time. It was our Billy Graham's first big campaign in Hollywood, California. It seemed big then. By today's standard, it was puny. Uh, 3,000 people in a tent, and in nine weeks, 3,000 decisions looked like a revival back then. Today, uh, any old evangelist sees 3,000 people come to the Lord uh, in Africa or Latin America or even some in the States. Anyway, uh, the fact is that he inspired me by showing you can be young. But the thing, I, I learned a whole bunch from him. Uh, I could write a book, and I should probably, but uh, his wisdom, he was far wiser. You know, evangelists are always treated like half-wits. All they know is John 3.16 and shout <laughs> and wave their arms, you know, which is not the worst thing you can do. But nevertheless, he, he was very bright, very spiritual. He would whip out his New Testament, which he carried in his pocket at any given point. He knew the Bible, I feel, better than most people I ever met. And he mm. lived it. His humility impressed me, his courage, his boldness, his wisdom in dealing with secular people. I learned so much. But yes, uh, when we were missionaries with a good mission uh, called OC, and um, but when I met him, for some reason, he got to like me, and he began to give me advice, and we corresponded. I've got a whole—I I didn't remember that we had so much correspondence all through really? the years besides phone calls, you know. Wonderful yeah. stuff, and he knew, cared about my wife and cared about the boys. And when we finally left the mission and formed our own team with the blessing of the mission, he gave me a lot of advice. Uh, he said, take it for two years. If it works, if it, if it works in two years, it means the Lord has something wrong. But he said, I took a, a, a college, Northwestern College in Minneapolis, and in two years I knew I, it wasn't for me. And after two years with the mission, I knew I shouldn't be the president of a mission because I'm too pushy, too evangelistic, too go, 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 you know, and not the patience of dealing with mission here and the mission there, and the Brazilian bunch and the Filipino bunch and all this kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't for me. So we all figured it out. So then he said, Luis, I'll put one of my top guys on your board if you want. I'll give you, with, he gave me a, a significant amount of money to kick off going. We're behind you. We feel the Lord wants you to do this. So and all my life, he, if I called him, he gave me advice, sometimes without asking for it. Often I would ask. He gave me very good advice. I really could tell you more about it, but it's too long. The main lesson to me about Mr. Graham of all the lessons was you can speak to the world boldly and yet respectfully, but not be one of them. And secondly, mm. humility. He was a very humble guy. When you think how well-known he was, how lionized he was, how he was one of the first two or three most famous Americans every year for years and years, and yet he would walk into a room, <laughs> shake your hand and say, hello, I'm Billy Graham. Like, ooh, surprise. I didn't know who you were, you know. <laughs> but he wasn't doing it. It wasn't a show. It was the way he was. He didn't think much about himself. And I could tell you stories of humility is a big deal. And uh, it's, uh, you know, his one of his verses was, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may lift you up, you know, and the Lord sure lifted him up. <laughs> yeah. How did you experience that humility? Like, I would, I would love to know, because I never had the opportunity to meet Billy Graham. I would love oh. to. But uh, can you think of a moment when you met him that sort of encapsulates that? I mean, not when you first met him, but just at some point in your interaction. Yes. Is there a story? Oh, yeah. Is there a moment that just you can tell us about? Absolutely. I will. I'd be glad to do it. 
Yeah, we were in Germany together at a conference for young people in Dortmund, I think it was. And uh, we were there in this hotel room chatting, and suddenly a young evangelist knocked on the door, and T.W. Wilson, his assistant, said, okay, just a minute. He asked, he said, Billy, here's a fellow who says he was converted through you 20 years ago. He wants to be an evangelist like you. He went to seminary, theological college, as the Europeans call it. Uh, he's got a team. He's got money, but no invitations to preach. So could he talk to you? So he said, okay, bring him in. So he came in, and this evangelist was really overwhelmed <laughs> to meet his spiritual father. And, you know, Billy Graham in his prime. This was in 74 or something. Wow. And uh, Mr. Graham received him warmly, and he said <laughs> it really shocked him uh, because he says, I've got a team, I've got money, I've got the education, but no invitations. Could you give me some suggestions? Billy Graham looked around like, somebody help me. He never had that problem, you know, <laughs> how to get an Yeah, I don't think he ever thought how did I get it? What he had to think was, how do I say no to this invitation? You know, right. because he got so many. But the guy, so he gave a few ideas. Well, pray about it, and maybe you might. Da, da, da. Finally, the, the fellow knew time was up, and T.W. said, hey, it's up. Uh, so he said, Mr. Graham, he was a Lutheran. Would you bless me, please? And Billy looked like, what do I do? Okay, he said, let's pray. So we all got on our knees. And we began, Billy began to pray for this evangelist who probably never met him again and probably never talked to him again. But he poured out his heart. Mr. Graham was praying, and I could hear his voice was muffled. So yeah. I sinned against the Lord and opened my eyes uh, to see what was going on. And Mr. Graham was spread eagle on the floor on the carpeting of his hotel, you know, praying his heart out for this evangelist he never met before. He probably never saw him again. And he asked the Lord, open doors for him, Lord, anoint him with a spirit. You know, he poured out his heart. And I thought, this is amazing. I still break down when I tell you the story. You yes. know, to see, yeah, to see Mr. Graham flat out on his face. Huh? And when he finished, the guy got up and said, oh, thank you, thank you, you know, and Billy hugged him and everything. And when he walked out, I was so shaken by seeing Mr. Graham, I mean, flat on his face for this fellow. I, I don't know what stupid question I asked, but Mr. Graham said, Luis, I read in, t in First Peter, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, that in due time, he may lift you up. And he said the theologians have their theories on that verse, but I take it to heart. Humble yourself. And the more we humble ourselves, the Lord will open doors. But that was a touching moment. You see a visible thing. You ask me a picture. That was what he was like, you know. And wow. he would never brag. He never told you stories about himself. He was always asking you about your, where are you? How are you doing? How's your wife? And he remembered my wife's name and my boys. You know, he was just, just a loving guy. And that's why he honored the Lord so highly. And I think we all should. I got I to gotta say, and I don't want to embarrass you, but uh, I mean, we did meet in person once, but uh, at that dinner, and there were maybe 10 or 12 people at that dinner. So it wasn't a big room, wasn't a super small room. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, wow, I can't believe I'm actually meeting Luis Palau. And uh, it was so amazing. And you prayed for all of us. But then over the course of the dinner, it amazed me. There were a couple of people between you and me, and my wife was there. And... Uh, I didn't say a lot at that dinner. Um, there were a number of people who were talking. And as the evening went on, uh, 
you didn't say much because it was one of those events where there were so many public speakers, it was hard to get a word yeah. in edgewise. Yes, You've been at those yeah, dinners before, whether remember, you remember yeah. that one specifically. Sure, sure. Yeah, I do, and I do. I started thinking, I just started thinking, I thought, my goodness, we have one of the greatest evangelists of our lifetime sitting at dinner and nobody is talking to him and nobody's <laughs> asking him any questions. And he prayed and it melted my heart. And uh. I just, I said to Tony after it was all over, we shook your hand before the evening was over. We thank you. And I thought, oh, what a, what a lost opportunity. And I would just encourage young leaders, man, when you have um, an opportunity like that in the room, you know, be quiet, take notes, listen, don't (laughs) dominate the conversation. And uh, I'm just so thrilled that we have the opportunity to pick up the conversation uh, a year and a little bit later. And uh, it just, it, it, it's, it's, I love your, your heart for that because I think when you're in the presence of greatness, which usually means you're in the presence of humility, the two are, are very tied together. Uh, you're right. You just take notes. And, and the truly great leaders are always interested in you and always um, listening and always trying to learn in that moment. So it was, it was something um, really that I will remember the rest of my life. Uh, anything else on Billy Graham? I want to talk more about you and everything you've learned in your life. But it was such a, an amazing friendship. And I think yeah. the church misses him, and certainly I miss him, even as someone who has never met him. Yes. No, you're right. He left a legacy of honor, honor transparency, truthfulness. Uh, what some people considered uh, a mistake, it was probably uh, needs to be asked a question. Was it a mistake or was it that you that he told you the truth and you didn't like it? You know, there are many <laughs> such things in life that you, people accuse you. Yeah, the point is, I always ask when somebody says, you know, so-and-so is out of order, blah, blah, blah. The question is, was his style to you, your disliking or was the truth that he spoke, he just didn't say it quite, uh, maybe as graciously as some people do. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham had a graciousness, so much so that you, if you remember watching him on TV shows, the guys in charge, the hosts, usually said a few questions, sat back and started drinking tea, you know, or whatever they had in their cup. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, let, they let Billy Graham take over the show. And I also learned how with humility, they will actually turn the show over to you. And I've learned it watching him. He never told me that, but I watched him and I could tell what he was doing. As soon as they gave an opening, he wouldn't only answer the one question. He'd throw in 20 questions they should have asked, and he was answering those 20 questions. And usually the hosts knew that this would happen because he he was so gifted. So I tried to learn some of that, and it's worked through the years. If you're well-informed and you do it with with an attitude of, I'm not telling you, I'm not ordering you, you're not inferior in knowledge— I tell pastors and leaders, remember that the journalists usually want to communicate properly. Educate them without telling them you're educating. For instance, many journalists make mistakes between evangelical, evangelistic, evangelist, and what is the gospel. So you don't right. you 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 teach without teaching. You say, well, let me tell you, in in, in English, the word evangelist is a person who proclaims a good news. The evangelism is uh, trying to get people to connect with God and have eternal life. Uh, evangelism is not recruiting people to join a church just to get numbers. It's to get people into heaven. God wants heaven full of people. So you're without, you know 
pretending to be superior and a high school teacher, you're really helping the journalist to report correctly and, and not you mistake the terms. In the Spanish world, we have quite a bit of confusion between an evangelist, an evangelistic, and evangel, you know. So I learned that. And then also, with humility, you can speak for—you must never forget that you're a, an ambassador for Christ. And therefore, yeah. you do it with dignity, with with uh, highness, uh, uh, with— what do the French call it? A grandeur, a sense yes. of grandeur, a sense of authority, but humility. And you are an ambassador. Therefore, it's not just some little weasel trying to get his time in on a TV show. You are here as God's ambassador for the kingdom of God. And the attitude when it comes to, for instance, since some of your listeners might be interested, uh, the kingdom of God is above the kingdoms of this world. We are not here to promote one party. And I learned being from Latin America that if you take sides, you close the other side. And we evangelists and pastors, to be honest, you don't know who you have in your audience on Sunday morning. There's bound to be Democrats, Republicans, Greens, and all sorts of other descriptions of individuals. We are supposed to be above all that. We're not here to promote a party, even though we may, we may bend our voting, our secret voting may be uh, towards this or that side. But when you're speaking for the Lord, you're not taking sides. You actually want all people, left, right, and center, and whatever else, into the kingdom of God. And if you shut the door by making statements that close the door, you're really not representing the king as an ambassador. You know, we need to be very careful in days when the political heat is heavy that we don't allow ourselves to be buttonholed as of this or that side. No, sir, I'm sorry. I do not represent any party. I represent the kingdom of God and the king, Jesus Christ. And I'm in town to proclaim him, not myself or my opinions about politics or society and other other things that don't belong in, in, a, in a preacher's uh, preaching or teaching. Luis, that's a, I'm glad you said that because it made me think back. Your first crusade was, you know, publicly. What would you say your first crusade was? Which year? Was Ooh, it 19? Well, yeah, you mean a big one, a United Yeah, a big one, one yeah. Like yeah. I, I yeah, saw 1970 was, in some of my research, well, but was 66, it around that? 66, 66, the first one in Bogota, Colombia. And it was a very violent time in the country. It was yeah. partially political and partially religious. So it was a quite a frightening time to actually, but the Lord protected, blessed, and it was a memorable time. That was 62 years ago. Wow. 52, 52 years ago, excuse me. Because yeah. you think about uh, your crusades and then even Billy Graham, you know, starting out in the 40s and really, yes. I think at his at his peak in the 60s, 70s, 80s, yes. you know, which were not unified times. It's different today. But I mean, you had all kinds of issues in the United States and around the world in the 60s and 70s. But you're, you're, you're reminding me something that I think is missing in the church, which is that the gospel and evangelism is fundamentally a voice of unity. And yes. uh, yeah. where the kingdom of God is above the fray, how did yeah. you how did you navigate that in in that era in the sixties and the seventies? How did you navigate the division that was there in the culture that you were preaching to then? Oh yeah, well those were really frightful days in Latin mm. America where I started. It was very politicized. 
with uh, Castro in Cuba uh, openly defying and saying, first thing we do when we take over a country, he used to say it publicly, kill all the priests. No, first, get rid of all the lawyers. Secondly, all the priests and all the pastors. So you kind of felt like you were targeted. You couldn't help but be defensive, you know. And I started out as a young guy, fired up and ready for warfare, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I made a program that was called Cristo o Castro in Spanish. So Christ o Castro, a play on okay. words as well. Okay, I found out about three years later that Castro heard the program and he did not like me at all. I still <laughs> can't get into Cuba because of that one speech, even though he's been in eternity uh, passed out, out of planet Earth for two years. I still can't get in. Still can't because go to Cuba. Wow. No, I can't. So thank God others can. But anyway, so I learned a lesson. You better watch it. And then I led some very hardcore uh, Marxist-Leninists in Latin America to the Lord. And one lady who was a secretary of the party, it's in the movie that you mentioned, uh, she said to me one day, you know, Palau, you've got to stop attacking the communists by that name. If you disagree, and you should, Talk about atheists, but don't talk about communists, because when you talk communists, you're insulting the person. That's their conviction. I am a communist because it's good for the working man and so on. And I don't happen to believe in God because blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I learned a lesson, and I took it very clearly. And then we, we talked with the lead young student at the university who was also an atheist, Marxist, Leninist. And he said to me, how come you came to dinner to my house? Don't you realize I could have poisoned you? I said, yes, you could have. But then God, God could have poisoned you too. And he said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know. And then, <laughs> so then from there, the conversation got really good. And we became friends, you know, even though he was never converted. But you learn as you go along. And one of the things in Latin America that I soon learned is, look, you represent the gospel, the God yeah. Almighty, not these puny little fellows who come and go and call themselves president or something when, in fact, they take it over by military force and they impose themselves with secret police and so on. You're not here to fight that. You do fight it, but you fight it by winning them to Christ or the masses to Christ, not by getting involved in politics. So once I learned that lesson, I've been spreading it around because a lot of believers with a sincere heart get themselves entangled or even run for office as believers, vote for me because I'm a Christian kind of thing. And then they fail miserably. One fellow in Central America said he, the Lord told him he was going to be president. He got 4% of the vote. Well, how embarrassing is that, among other things? Yeah. You know, we had one in the States, actually, who also got 4% in Iowa, and who luckily, so to speak, dropped out of the race. But, you know, when you insist that the Lord told you to do it, okay, you better be sure, sure, and you should become president. Otherwise, what happened? Who told you? You know, so we could get into this gets a little thick, the subject, you know. Yeah, for uh, young leaders, we have a lot of young leaders, uh, some in the church space, and then a lot of business leaders listening as well. But what yes. would you say to young preachers? What are some traps to avoid based on all of your experience? Because you have led in ver and preached in very divisive times. Yes. So yes. what would you tell you know, them to avoid or to do? Well, I would say, first, stick with the Scriptures. Um, your people, Billy used to say, most people know so little about the Bible that when you start quoting the Bible for, by heart and you say, St. Paul said this and Jesus Christ said, they're going to think, my goodness, this guy's got all this stuff memorized. You know, <laughs> so you have an authority that you don't even realize you have by knowing the Word of God. 
use that authority because, as I used the term earlier, the grandeur, the grandeur of being called to teach the Word and to proclaim Jesus Christ. And if God has led you into the pastoral work to be a shepherd, think of the grandeur of it. Jesus Christ gave me these 200 souls and said, they're my sheep, take care of them, feed them, build them up, protect them. I mean, the, just that itself is an honor. Secondly, think of the authority that he gives you. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We should not feel like little nobodies in a corner of a big city. We are God's ambassadors in that corner of the city. Think of the grandeur of it and think of the authority. In other words, you speak not with arrogance, but with the humble authority. I'm telling you what the Word of God says, and here's the book. If you want to know it, I didn't get it from anywhere, but from the book itself, from Jesus Christ. Thirdly, think of the influence you have. I really want to take advantage of this moment that you give me. You can always erase me, but uh, I, I, I just feel the, the uh, uh, most pastors forget that they have tremendous influence in society without meddling in the details of political parties and people who spout off this way or that way. Uh, the, 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 the influence is you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Even a, a group of 200, many a pastor feels, my church is so puny, what influence can it possibly have? Hey, there's 200 souls who are salt and light. It doesn't say try to be the salt and light. It says you are the salt, you are the light. Just those 200 people that you're feeding every week and that you're encouraging and praying for, they are in the city. I now that I'm sick, you know, in hospitals and I'm staying home so much, I, I I'm embarrassed not to be traveling. Uh, I, I'm in restaurants and in shops and in the hospital. And people come up and say, oh, Mr. Palau, I, I recognize your voice. I hear you on the radio. Ah, what church do you go to? No, I don't go to church. I just enjoy listening to you. And I think, now there goes salt and there goes light without my even knowing it, you know. So remember that, uh, the greatness. Of, and fourth, <clears throat> there's many points you could have on this, but Remember to exposit the Word of God. When you go through a book and you say, for the next few weeks, we're going to study 2 Corinthians. I love that book, so I mentioned mm. it. Second, yeah. You start from verse 1, chapter 1, and you just go through, and you give an exposition. And eventually you come to a few controversial points. Well, okay, deal with them as from the Word of God. Don't skip them. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. It's the Word of God. But you don't do it selecting. You know, when you do topical, it feels like, oh, he picked this point because last week in Washington, blah, blah, blah. No, you're going through 2 Corinthians. That's the value of expository preaching, that you teach the church, you encourage the church, you educate the church without even telling them you're doing it because you're just expositing God's words. So exposition is good for the church. Now, when it comes to evangelistic preaching, which I think every pastor ought to, at minimum, once a month, give a gospel invitation. You know, the interesting thing, sort of sarcastically, you say, you know, it's a funny thing. All the big churches happen to give an invitation every Sunday. Isn't that surprising? You know, <laughs> well, yeah, it's sort of surprising, but it's logical too, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think we make a mistake. Uh, and if you don't feel led to give an invitation, invite an evangelist with a gift of evangelism to preach and tell him a few things not to say. We don't want any partisan stuff here. We don't want uh, divisive interdenominational things. Just give us the good news. And you know, that's another point, if I may say so, Carrie. 
Remember that evangelism is proclaiming good news. The Holy mm. Spirit is there before you. This is a great relief to evangelists. The Holy Spirit was there before you showed up in town, okay? The Bible says the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The people seated in front of you already have a sense of, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. They know it. How do I know? Because Jesus said so. The Holy Spirit will convict us, the world of sin. So when I come in, he gives us the privilege of proclaiming the good news to people who are conscious of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I don't have to point a finger and jab their nose and smile, get two fingers in their eyes, you dirty little sinner. They already know it full well. I am there to say, for all of you who feel that sense of guilt and condemnation, just like I did for many years, I'm telling you there's very good news. And the good news is the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. Now, I believe in proclamation. I prefer the word proclaim to preach. Preach is sort of a professional position. Proclamation, my mother did proclamation. And she was never a preacher. She'd put you to sleep in three minutes. But in person, my, my mom could easily proclaim Jesus Christ without preaching Jesus Christ. And one of the great honors I heard the other day, we led a, a banker to Christ here in town that my dad has been taken to the Alpha course, you know, and he came and we had dinner. And the next day he shows up in our church, seated in my pew. I have a pew in my church. I Don't you sit in my pew, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so he's there and he said, Luis, Friday night you told me about it's a gift that you receive. I've been rejecting it for years. First time in 17 years that I show up in church. He said, the thing that got my attention was, you didn't preach at me, you spoke with me. And you know, that's what a preacher should feel, even from the pulpit. They should know that you're not preaching at them like holier than thou, but I'm just another fellow who received eternal life. And the unbelievers instantly notice the difference. So give the good news. Good news is good. So why be embarrassed about it? When you started Crusades, like you go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was amazing. I mean, you know, tens of thousands. I mean, you preached to millions. Billy Graham preached to millions. Uh, I know we still see traces of that, and you're still preaching. I mean, very strongly. You're still, you're still doing Crusades and evangelism. Was there something special a generation ago that really made that kind of mass momentum possible? Is it still there? Like what, what would you say when you look back on it now and you've got some perspective? Was that a different era, a special era? I'm, just, I'm trying to figure out what, uh, what made that so compelling for so long. Hmm. Well, you know, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to everyone, not just a few who are lucky that you could find them on the street. So you make an effort to speak to a city. A, a true blue proclamation evangelist will never sleep at night if he didn't try to touch the whole city in this one big blast of an appearance. Now, it takes months to prepare for it. Yeah, the long ones are the best ones, but nowadays we can only take two days, and that seems like horribly long, you know, because everybody's busy and all sorts of things. But mass proclamation is not any better or worse than one-on-one. -on -one. Some people say, well, it's flighty, it's emotional. 
come on, think a little deeper. You know, just because I'm sitting with you nose to nose at a Starbucks doesn't have more power than 60,000 people in a stadium. The Holy Spirit personalizes the message, not you, not the physical situation, not the coffee that you're drinking. The point is, if the Holy Spirit has worked through you, the Holy Spirit can deal with 60,000 as well as with one person across the coffee table. So you do you deliver the same message with a little more dynamics when you have a crowd than a fellow in front of you. But nevertheless, it's the same gospel. You don't convert them. The method doesn't convert them. It's the gospel by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God that turns a person around. So it's not a. we mustn't confuse methods with message. Message mm. is sacred. It never changes. The method do whatever you want, as long as it's honorable and uh, not uh, unjust or improper. Any method is valid. And so the Lord never left methodology, really, although the apostle preached to multitudes. And in the New Testament, I counted. I don't know in English, but in Spanish, I think it's 152 times in the New Testament mentions the crowds, the message, the city, the multitudes. 152 times. How could it be wrong if Jesus did it and Paul did it? Why would would it be wrong? in the year 2020 or whatever, you know. When you look at how you did Crusades and approached Crusades in 1975, and you look at the ones you're doing now, more recently, last five years, what's the same and what has changed? Okay, what's the same? Churches working together, prayer going up uh, in the Spirit, uh, having spirit-filled re- revival meetings for the church to be really in the spirit during the campaign. An old missionary who was one of my mentors, I've had a ton of mentors, I need them. Uh, he said to me, he said, uh, mobilizing the flesh brings nothing but a big stink, and God hates the flesh. But if you rev- if you mobilize revived, spirit-filled Christians, that pleases the nostrils of God. You know, that was an old-fashioned way of putting it. Yeah. But it's true. So we try to revive the church and realize this is not a game. This is not a show. This is not Hollywood. This is not sports. We may be in a sports arena or a beach. Uh, there may be. So what's changed? What's changed is venue. Instead of stadiums more and more, we do beaches, parks, and shut down main avenues in cities if we can persuade the city to do it. And it works more often than you think. Can I in ask the old you why? Days, yes. Why, why, why did you switch from stadiums? Well, stadiums are good, and I miss them, I'll tell you the truth. But to get non-believers into a stadium is getting harder and harder. Ah. Whereas if you're on the street or the beach or a park, yeah, it's a place everybody shows up. You're not feeling like, I went to a religious meeting. I just went because they said there's good music, and this guy's going to give a message on blah, blah, blah. And uh, so they show up. They don't have to justify with their friends or family. Why did you go hear that nutty preacher type of thing? You know, I just went to the park, you know. Uh, so it makes it easy for the non-believer. It draws people. The young people like it. What's changed then is location. Uh, as, as we just discussed. Secondly, the style of music. In the old days, the crusade used to be a church service in mass. You know, choir, preachers with their ties on, sitting on the platform looking solemn, and so on. It was all good. It was worthy. But now... People don't care about that. So everybody shows up in jeans. I have too much dignity for jeans. I I wear other kind of clothing. But, you know, no tie, no preacher sitting 
uh, solemnly on the preach on the platform instead of choir now you have contemporary music and therefore you draw the younger people which in a way is your number one goal even old christians will admit they want somebody to win the young people and the kids to jesus christ and the kind of music is what draws them in part but the key is the spirit is there that doesn't change the gospel is the same it hasn't changed you may use different stories in the old days we never talk about an iphone or you know a, 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 anything of that it didn't exist but now you you just deal it's a method that's all that's changed and uh, they're they're longer in the old days an hour and a half people start walking out now you better arrive at two and leave at 10 o'clock at night you know and people yeah. come and go they bring their kids in the afternoon there's sports we use a lot of sports skateboarding motorbikes by uh, uh, bikers who do incredible stunts in the air and then with us for Christ and it touches a certain sub tribe of the city to talk about skateboarding skaters or bikers or whatever. So you use every method you can change for the situation. The message never changes. So was that difficult for you to change the method or do you have a personality that found that really easy to do? Yeah, I, uh, uh, I, at first, I was afraid. I thought the churches are not going to support me anymore. My mother-in-law is going to chuck me out of the house, you know. <laughs> and and I thought this is really dangerous. Uh, you know, loud, uh, freewheeling, uh, cheering, clapping. Uh, it's a whole new approach. I it, I mean, I wasn't a kid when we changed. I was in my sixties uh, here in Portland, Oregon. You know, and uh, at first, I I thought. When I got off the first night, I thought, there are going to be a bunch of clergy waiting to tell me off. They were there, but said, let's do it again next year. You know, <laughs> And I thought, wow, something good has happened. And that was listening to my sons and the young members of the team, you know, because they said, you know, Dad, I mean, the stadiums were great and it stayed, but look, we're not getting unbelievers. Look, the number of people converted has dropped. Something isn't right. So I'm glad I listened to them. <laughs> In fact, you know, the first day I went to the downtown Marriott and I said, not my wife, nobody else. I want to be alone. I'm going to pray and pray and pray because I thought it could be the end of our ministry when we switch mm. to this festival. We call them fest festivals now. In the old days, we copied Billy Graham. You imitate the best, not the losers, but the winners, you know. <laughs> and so we called it crusades. But then we realized even crusade was old-fashioned. And Mr. Graham himself started calling them other things, you know. In Europe, he called them Mission to London or something like that. So anyway, he was adaptable too. And eventually he had Toby Mac singing and he had bikers doing their thing. You know, in the end, he adapted to the new methods also. He was very smart. I mean, his goal was to reach people just like your goal and mine. Well, and and uh, I love what you said, too. We were, you were asking me, so what exactly do you do? And I'm like, oh, a lot of things, but I do a lot of podcasting these days. And you said, oh, podcasting is preaching. I love that, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. It's in your own way, low-key, a microphone in front of you, some books in the background. You know, you're podcasting us, you know. Yeah, you're yeah, teaching yeah. us. Yeah. You mentioned prayer a number of times, and I, I was really struck. I mean, it was just a, a prayer for grace, but it really impacted me. And so I pray every day. It's not my top spiritual gift, but I would love to know, what have you learned about prayer over your <sighs> lifetime? <laughs> a lot, a lot. I started out watching my mother, the widow, yeah. uh, you know, trusting the Lord. We were well off when my dad was yeah. alive. He was a brilliant businessman. 
He left lands and properties, but we didn't know it. He had no paperwork, you know. He didn't expect to die at 34 after a 10-day illness. So he left, and my mom knew nothing about business. Uh, five sisters, me and a brother. I mean, all she did was to bring up kids. So she was done in. We lost everything. We ended up in debt. We didn't even know what we owned. Took years for one of my sisters who was single to dig up all the places we owned, but we lost them because somebody else took them. And, you know, anyway, it was a dramatic time. And uh, But my, my mom would always, we would thank the Lord, even when we had very little food. We thanked the Lord like we were rich, you know. We had food for tonight, praise God. And we would get on our knees by the table before we ate. And I saw my mom trust the Lord through all the troubles of widowhood and losing everything we owned. We lost it practically all. We paid back debts. 20 years later, when we all got out into the world and began to make some money, we were able to pay everything off. And when we discovered a few pieces of land that we were able to sell anyway, you know. But mm. that all took years of learning to pray to the Lord, trust the Lord. My mom taught us that God makes no mistakes. Uh, all things work together for good to those who love God. Uh, uh, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, my God shall supply all your needs according to riches and glory. So you learn to pray. And as I've said more than once, you learn to pray by by, play, by praying, just like you learn to swim by being pushed into the pool. You know, <laughs> some kid pushes you in and you scramble out of there huffing and puffing. Eventually you learn to swim properly if you weren't trained uh, and so on. But then as through the years, I've learned more and more. And now, of course, with my cancer, I think it's the ultimate lesson. Uh, believers send you all sorts of suggestions, and they're sweet, and they pray for you. i got millions of people praying, so maybe that's why the Lord prolonged my months on planet <sighs> Earth. But, uh, but you learn to pray with understanding, not only with your spirit, as Paul says, but with your understanding. And it's a beautiful thing to see. But, you know, one African fellow, we were at a conference in California, Oof, 35 years ago, I was talking about prayer, and he came up to me and he said, you know, Luis, he was in the audience. He said, in Africa, we say God answers prayer four ways. And then I added a fifth one. And he said, God answers, he says, yes, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> we often tell everybody except the Lord that we need this or we want that. Mm. Secondly, no, I love you too much. And that's mm. a good answer to prayer. And many nice. times the Lord answers, nobody, I know better, and I love you too much to give you that one. Number three, yes, but not yet, timing. Number four, yes, and here's more. That's the one I really like. You know, the, <laughs> Me too. The Lord not only answers your prayer, but he throws in some extras. And then I added one that struck me when I was in China. Yes, but differently from what you thought. You know, my thought was, I'm going to get permission to be in Tiananmen Square. I, I told this to all the communist leaders that I met, and I was able to meet some of the top guys in China uh, in the past uh, season of uh, government. And I would say to them, I want, Palau, what, what are you in China? What is it you want? I would say, I want a million Chinese in Tiananmen Square, and you allow me to speak to them about Jesus Christ. And they would always, <laughs> yeah, that's good, Palau. Come back, come up, keep coming back. One of these days it'll happen. Well, 
uh, the Lord suddenly allowed me to meet one of the ministers of state who was reading the Bible, openly telling people, even say, I'm a Marxist, Leninist, I'm an atheist, but I've read the Bible three times. So uh, I said to him, well, when you retire from politics, you should become a preacher. You must know the Bible real well. What does it teach? I said, I'm interested in the Bible. And he gave me the four laws, like a campus crusader, you know, in the old days. And uh, he said, uh, uh, so he became a believer. And we wrote a book together called uh, um, Riverside Talks, a friendly dialogue between an atheist and a Christian. And the book has been the fourth bestseller in China. They're going to do us another edition with another introduction in the coming months. And the top leaders of China read it. And the Lord one day said to me, so you wanted a million people to brag and tell everybody that you had a million people in Tiananmen Square. I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to have you write a book that they're going to read and they're going to get the same gospel. But you're not going to get the kicks that you wanted to see Tiananmen Square filled with people. And I really think it was the Lord's discipline. I hope my son Andrew gets to do it yeah, and I can watch from heaven you know, him preaching. Uh-huh to a million Chinese, it would be so terrific, you know, and the Lord can do it yet. So anyway, so prayer, answered prayer, is, is you learn to walk with God. And you know, one favorite verse, since you brought up prayer, I hope I'm not overdoing it, but oh, no. is Psalm 37, 4. Uh, last weekend, I did a wedding here in Portland for a couple uh, I know, and a lady for, and her husband came and said, uh, if God is, knows everything, and if God... Uh, knows what's happening and what's going what's the point of praying i said well i gave her the four, the five points <clears throat> the lord said pray at all times you know uh, ask and you will receive seek and you will find knock on the door will be open but the one i really nailed her on was psalm 37:4 delight yourself also in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart in other words you delight yourself in the lord you get in tune with the lord's mind through scripture, through meditation in the scripture, and through comments from other believers, and you sense the mind of God, and therefore your prayer is in tune with God's mind that you have seen in scripture, you meditate on its application, and the Lord will answer, because he puts the desire in your heart to pray, and you pray, and he he, he incites you to pray, to do. You probably haven't even noticed, but the Lord led you into podcasting. We've never Mm -hmm. talked about how you came into it, but probably it was a desire in your heart to communicate to leaders. So you start praying and say, Lord, this is what I'd like. And if the Lord is in it, he says, of course, I want it too. I'll open the doors for you. Get going, you know. Whoever is faithful in little is faithful also in much. Whoever is faithless in a very little is faithless. Also. So you're faithful in the little things. And I believe, I tell young evangelists, the Lord is watching and he sees you are faithful in the little things, he'll open a door. You're faithful in the big door, he'll open another door. And there's no limit to what the Lord will do as long as you're in tune with him. Delight yourself with the Lord. And then the prayers flow from that. So, And then intercessory prayer, of course, is different. Intercessory prayer... When we went to the Soviet Union, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, Carrie. I don't know today how I got in there. It was in the wow. days when Marxism was still in power. We had campaigns in over 10 cities of the old Soviet Union with their blessing and giving us permissions and letting us preach in stadiums and coliseums. Uh, the head of the uh, secret police over there, what was it called in the old days? Oh, oh the KGB. Right 
KGB, there you got it. The head of the KGB in one of those countries had put in jail the top Christian leader three times. He was in the audience one night. The guy, the fellow who had been put in jail was now out and was the head of the campaign. He said to me, Palau, you won't believe who's sitting in the front row, in the second row. Uh, the leader of the KGB threw him jail, threw me in jail three times. She said, he said, can I bring him on the platform and, and let him sit here? I said, go ahead. You know, I mean, what, what, what have I got to lose? And he went, and I could tell the fellow saying, no, no, no. But he said, he'll come tonight to my home for dinner. He came that night. He brought a gift, and he gave his life to the Lord. I mean, the head of the KGB. So if you ask me, how did you get in there? Honestly, I can't remember how they got me in there. If you ask, how did you pay for it? We were a small team. I still don't know how we paid for it, but it all happened, and we got on free TV nationwide in Marxist-Leninist territory. They put us on television out of one of the countries nationwide four Saturdays in a row. Same message, and we were giving away a booklet called What is a Real Christian that I wrote. It, it was translated to Russian. A million copies went out. And I've heard since then, this was in 89 or something, uh, I heard how many thousands have come to the Lord because of that national... So you pray, you intercede, you use spiritual authority in prayer, but it's a mystery of interacting between you and the living God, you know? He Mm. lays desires in your heart, you pray that desire, and the Lord says, I will do it. And he does it beyond our potential, beyond our finances, beyond our influence. I didn't know a soul in the Soviet Union except one fellow who lived in Canada who knew, who was Russian but had escaped. And he came and became our interpreter, and now he's Franklin Graham's interpreter. So there you go. <laughs> That is so inspiring. It really is. And I've seen that again and again in my life where I think, okay, this is how it's going to happen. And then God was, actually, no, we're going to turn left here and we're going to do this. We're going to turn right now. And it's it's crazy. We we only have a few minutes left in our time together. I want to ask you, 84 years old, the energy. I mean, you and I are looking at each other through a screen. (laughs) <laughs> but like, I almost feel like you're here. You have so m- you have more energy than a lot of 44 year olds I know. <laughs> what are some of the habits, the rhythms and the disciplines that have kept you fully alive over uh-huh. eight decades? You know, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I yeah. said to my wife, who is my number one counselor, uh, uh, nobody knows it, but it's true. She doesn't even believe me, but I quote her more often, especially when she's not around. Uh, but she said to me, you spent a lot of time with your family and refused to go. I I gave up golfing at age 30, I think. One day I came back from a five-week trip, and I told her how much I missed her and blah, 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 and I couldn't wait to be home. The next morning I take off to golf with my pastor, and I suddenly <laughs> the, whole, the Holy Spirit says to me, you lied to your wife. You weren't so happy to see her. You wanted to go golfing with Mr. Wallen, you know? And so I, I said, the golf carts are going. I'm going to stay home when I come home. I'm on the road so much. And so she thought that one of the great things I did was stay home with them rather than mm-hmm. hit the road with my buddies much as I wanted to. But I think the, the, the disciplines, you asked an interesting question there. I think, of course, like every other believer, time with God, mm-hmm. I have learned to talk to the Lord all day long. And I talk about things that seem trivial and profound heavy and some light. If I told you everything I pray for, you'd think I'm I'm a child. That's how I see myself, you know. I see God as not only my creator in the early years, 
Uh, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Secondly, he's my father. He became my real father from the day my, my dad died. I just clung to the Lord. My dad told me, uh, uh, use the book of Proverbs. I was six years old, and I walked in on him in the morning. He was on his knees with a blanket on his shoulders. There was no central air conditioning in Argentina in those days. Mm-hmm. And he was praying, reading his Bible. And I was six or seven, no more, because then I went to boarding school. And uh, I said, Dad, what are you doing? And he said, I'm reading the Word. And I said, what are you reading? And he said, the book of Proverbs. And he said, when you grow up, you read the book of Proverbs one chapter a day, and you'll be a successful man, you'll be a good dad, you, you will serve the Lord, and you will avoid mm. sin. And anyway, he sold me on it. When I was 16, one day I was really desperate. You know, we were losing everything and hard times. And I, it was the only time in my life, God, I still feel embarrassed to say it. I was, quote, mad at God. I'm sure mm. it frightened him terribly. And he was <laughs> really shaken. Ooh, but I was mad at us. What do we do now? You know? But anyway, I, I felt I remembered my dad saying, read Proverbs. And I took it to heart. And even to this day, not every day anymore, but often, very often, I listen to it on my iPhone. And it speaks to me. It speaks about sex. It speaks about love, marriage, money, fatherhood, motherhood. I didn't know how to be a dad. And no one in the church ever came to me and said, hey, man, you're a teenager. You don't have a dad. Let me help you out. Until I was 24, finally one missionary from California, Chris, uh, uh, Mr. Benson, he said to me, Luis, marriage is so great. Man, it's nothing like it. And I was drooling, you know. I wasn't yeah. married. I, I don't know what a nice thing it sounds like. Finally, at 27, met my wife and got married. But the book of Proverbs... The book of John, the missionaries emphasize the Bible. So that discipline is tremendous. How can you know the mind of God without it, you know? And then another big thing is proclaim the good news. And don't forget it is good news. I did it before. I got to say it again because it's vital. Good news, good news. Good. When people see us coming, they should say, come the good news, guys. You know, not the bad news, the good news. Because God is on his throne. Jesus Christ is resurrected. He's coming again. He forgives sins. You can receive the Holy Spirit. You become a temple of God. You go straight to heaven. What better news than that, you know? So don't forget that. And then you'll never have regrets. I'm old now. I have no regrets looking back. I could have done a few things that I wish I had but didn't. There are some sins we won't talk about because they're washed by the blood. You know that you wish you had never spoken some of your thoughts or mm-hmm. said some of the things uh, you mean. And, but, you know, uh, we simply... Oh, and the other thing is local church involvement. I've, I've got to emphasize that. And you as a podcaster now, don't mm-hmm. neglect your local church. I'm no, exhorting sir. you, since you could be much younger than I am, I have authority to exhort you, you know. The local church is the only institution the Holy Spirit has left on earth. All yeah. us, you podcasters, we radio people, evangelists, they're all good as long as we honor the body of Christ, which is a local expression in a local church. I've been an elder in my church for 40-some years. Finally, last February, when it looked like I'm out of here, I resigned and they accepted it, and I'm not an elder this year. Uh, I'm just old, not an elder. And the, 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 But be, the local church, we insist on our guys on the team that they belong to our church. If they're invited to be deacons, be deacons. Elders, be elders. Teach Sunday school. Show up. Worship. 
Don't act like the church is a burden. I have learned, I got to tell you the truth, uh, in this illness, the church is much better than we ever give it credit for. In a crisis, they're weak, but they're, they're, they're spiritual people. And they're, the church is a glorious place. And Jesus Christ died for it, so don't mess with the Lord and, and treat it like it's garbage. Christ died for the church. In, in Acts 20, Paul says to the elders, you know, be, take care of the church of God that he bought with his own blood. So he doesn't take criticism of the church lightly. He bought it with his own blood. Flaws and all, it's still the body of Christ. So uh, I think those are some of the secrets that I would pass on to the new generation. Wow. Don't neglect the church and don't allow the church to be attacked like it's the worst scum of the earth. Uh, everything else is scummier than the church ever thought of being. Wow. Last question. What is one, you've been interviewed thousands of times. What is one question you never get asked that you wish someone would ask you? You know, I, I thought about that and I can't think of one. You know, <laughs> I guess that's I mean, what happens when you get interviewed thousands of times, right? Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, we, we, we're on the radio. We have a program in Spanish, which is Luis Palau Responds. And it's questions people ask. There's so many, yeah. but there's a variety of them. You know, I, I wish I could give you one, but I can't. I'm embarrassed. Wow. I, I said that's to my wife. Right. I said to her, you know, Bob, uh, babe, if, if they ask me about this on the podcast, what should I say? She couldn't give me one either. So there you go. The answer is, I don't know. Well, <laughs> that is a, a life well lived. And I, <laughs> I, I, I never do this, but what I would love, <laughs> if you are willing, is would you pray for us? Would you pray oh, for the leaders listening, uh, the Christians, yeah, the non-Christians listening? Um, would you pray for us? That would be such I an absolutely. honor for me to have you do that. Oh, well, absolutely. Thank you, Carrie. I, I really you, will do it. I will lead in prayer. And uh, if anybody is in the audience who still are not sure if you have eternal life, it would be a great moment to give your life to Christ and know that you have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, that you become the temple of God, and when you die, you go to heaven. That is the gift of God. So, oh God, our Father, Thank you so much for our brother, Carrie. Thank you that he had the burden to podcast good stuff to people who are hungry to know how to walk with you, how to serve you, how to lead others into your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for giving us an opportunity. We thank you for the grandeur of being called servants of God. And, oh, Lord, we submit to you. We are your slaves. We do what we're told. We're not great people. We're not famous people. We're not movie stars. This is not a facade. This is not a show. This is serving you, Lord, and serving the spiritually needy multitudes all over the world. So I pray your blessing on this podcast week after week, month after month, year after year. Oh, Lord, may millions and millions of those who listen to this podcast be multiplied, share the good news, win others to your kingdom so they can enjoy your presence on earth and also the assurance of eternity with you in heaven. Oh, Lord, thank you for those who brought us the gospel. I thank you for the missionaries that came to Argentina and brought us two things, Jesus Christ and the Bible. And we thank you, Lord. We pray that their descendants would be blessed. And I just thank you for this opportunity to lead your people on Carrie's podcast uh, to a better life, a joyful life, a fruitful life. And we ask it with knowing that you will bless it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, 
That was moving and uh, yeah. extremely powerful. Luis, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I apologize for crying. No, <laughs> I'm crying I, too. I'm I'm I, crying. I, I, You're crying. It's a good it's a good day. It's a good day. There's something really special that happened uh, today yeah. in this time together. So yeah. thank you very very thank much. You. you spoke to my heart. Thanks, Gary. Lord bless you. Well, doesn't get a lot better than that, does it? <laughs> Man, uh, I am so grateful for that. And this is one of those interviews I'm going to look back on years from now and be so grateful that we had it. And and I don't know about you, but when I get around uh, older adults, it's just very challenging to me to think about how I want to live out the rest of my years and how hopefully, you know, I can serve and make a small difference in some way. And so I hope that inspired you. We do have links to everything we talked about in the show notes. So you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 268. And uh, we also have transcripts. And remember, not for this episode, but for some other ones that we've launched recently, we're now on YouTube. So you can just find me, Kerry Newhoff, on YouTube, and you'll see the videos there. And I'm just so excited to bring that to you. If you haven't yet checked out Pro Media Fire, make sure you do that. Go to promediafire.com forward slash Kerry, C-A-R-E-Y. Get 10% off for life on all of your video and social needs. And we are back in just a couple days with an episode. And again, we're you know, all over the place in this podcast in terms of subjects, which you keep telling me you love and I love because it keeps it interesting. I am an Enneagram 8 with a 7 wing. So I like fun. I like different. And I like honest. And David and Wilson are incredibly honest. And I don't know. I, I talk to most couples. And when you really poke through the veneer, it's pretty powerful to see what's really going on. And I know some of you are struggling in your relationship. Some of you are like, eh, that's not good. But have you ever said to your spouse, I'd rather be dead than married to you? Um, that's what we, that is the level of honesty that we we're talking about. And it was one of these interviews where uh, in the middle of the interview, Dave and Ann just kind of said, okay, we're actually talking about this. Yeah, I guess we're talking about this, aren't we? Anyway, here's an excerpt from the interview that's coming out in just a couple of days. They're wondering, what's our mission? Like we were raising these kids together that, that, joined us that that combined our passions but now what and i think so many couples are wondering well what's our mission now and i just feel like oh god has so much for us as couples and um but but so that's not one of ours i think the thing that i will always struggle with in our marriage even though i've realized that i think it's really important for couples to recognize the pain in your past comes into your present so recognize if you're struggling with your pain in your present, go back to the extension cord of what it's connected to. Because I always know that's going to be my little button of, oh, I'm not seen. Am I important? Do I matter? Am I here? And so that's always mine. It's just helpful that we're doing it together now. But I wonder about Dave sometimes like, oh, is that lure of ministry always more fascinating than me? Man, you're going to love that. And if you subscribe, you get it automatically and you get it for free on any device. So thank you so much for sharing when episodes have made an impact on you. Thanks for telling your friends. Uh, thank you for doing what you do. I really appreciate you. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.